Uh, my name is Charles Goodhart, and I'm your chairman for this evening, which means that I'm responsible for everything that goes wrong, uh, like everything that goes wrong in the Eurozone. Now, before we start tonight's discussion, I'd like to take the temperature of the audience uh, by having an initial vote before your ideas are corrupted uh, by the comments of my colleagues. So I'd like all those who believe that the Eurozone will survive more or less unchanged, please to raise your hands now. All those who think that the Eurozone can survive more or less unchanged. Okay? Now I'd like all those who believe that the Eurozone will not survive unchanged to raise their hands. We have a lot of skeptics here. Right, uh, and we'll take another vote at the end of the evening. Now our panel tonight consists of four experts who are naturally, and like many of you, fascinated by what's going on in the Eurozone and on the continent. Uh, two from the European Institute, Bob Hanke and Vasilis Monasteriotis, if I got it anywhere near correct, uh, and two from the Financial Markets Group, one Dimitri Vianos, who's not yet here, and my colleague uh, John Danielson. So as you will see, we have two from Greece, uh, one from Iceland, and one from Flanders and Belgium, which more or less manages to hit all the major trouble spots in the Europe in one day. <laughs> they have become expert in if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. <laughs> now, the agenda for tonight is as follows. Um, I'm going to start with what I hope will be a very short background piece, and then each member of the panel will have up to ten minutes uh, to develop a theme. Following that, we will have a short interchange among members of the panel, and then we will have an interchange with all of you, questions and questions and or very short comments. If the comment is longer than one minute by my watch, we will move on to the next question. And on this, I will take no, uh, uh, no, no prisoners. Um, then, ten minutes before the close, each of the four panellists can give their closing thoughts. Ah, here is our final panellist. We're now, we're now pouring. And then we will end with a final vote to see if the views about the survival of the Eurozone remain the same. Okay, let me now move on to a, what I hope is a very short background. And I should have perhaps add that I asked all of us not to use PowerPoint. I thought it would make for a better debate and less of a set of mini lectures if we got away from PowerPoint. Now, from the outset of the move towards a single euro currency, it was recognized from the very start that the zone was not an optimal currency area. And it was also recognized that it really did not have the political cohesion, the centralized fiscal mechanism, or the labor mobility to meet large asymmetric shocks. 
Instead, there was, and I should add, indeed, remains, a hope that crises to the Eurozone would subsequently lead towards more political and economic and fiscal unification, a hope and belief which I think still remains undimmed, plus a hope that the asymmetric shocks wouldn't, wouldn't be too large, at least until the euro got really bedded in. Now, in fact, the very start of the Eurozone represented a very large but positive shock to the countries in the periphery, since what happened was that the interest rates in these countries, which had been raised by concerns about various kinds of risk, now converged to the much lower levels, which had were uh, in existence in Germany and in the core countries. The result of the sharp decline in interest rates in the peripheral countries was a very large and quite persistent expansion, either in government expenditures and or in many of these countries in housing construction, which was financed by large-scale capital inflows via the banks and largely into the sovereign debt of these countries. And this capital flow was quite elastic in response to very small changes in the relative interest rates because until quite recently, indeed really until 2010, people thought that the sovereign debt uh, of all these peripheral countries was as safe as the sovereign debt of the core countries. Now, this capital inflow was matched by increasing wage costs, relative unit labor costs, relative to, the, to Germany, and by a large and persistent current account surplus. Then, effectively in 2009, 2010, we got a sudden stop to such capital flows. And this was caused initially by the collapse in housing uh, following and, and related to but separate from the collapse in the US and then exacerbated by the realization of the weakness of public sector finances in some part in some countries because of the need to prop up their banking systems which again had been overexposed to the housing and construction markets. Now, this has caused two problems. First, a liquidity and financing problem. How do you actually finance uh, under these kind of pressures, both the banking system and the sovereign, where the two financial uh, conditions are closely interactive? But underneath, there is a really more troubling adjustment problem. Uh, the financing problems so far have been met up to a point by a combination of bailouts, ECB support, ECB, the European Central Bank support, and externally imposed austerity programs. The greater problem is essentially one of adjustment, of restoring competitiveness and growth to these countries. Now, a few countries have achieved what is known as internal devaluation with major, major cutbacks 
in wages and prices. Uh, these countries are Latvia in particular and the other Baltic countries to a degree and Ireland to a fairly considerable degree uh, where the relative wages and relative unit labour costs are moving quite strongly in the right direction. <coughs> Others, indeed all the other members of the periphery, particularly in the Mediterranean periphery, effectively have not been able or willing to undertake such internal adjustment. Now, under those circumstances, austerity by itself just leads to deflation and poverty. And what is frequently suggested as a way out which is described as structural reform, though highly desirable in a number of cases, usually takes so long that it really is no answer to the short-run problems that these countries have. So we remain very much in difficulties, uh, difficulties which in a sense have been brought to a head uh, by the recent extraordinarily surprising uh, occasion uh, of the proposed referendum uh, in Greece, which I think surprised everyone. It certainly surprised me, and it surprised the hell out of the markets. So with that brief uh, introduction, let me pass first of all over to Bob for his introductory statement. Thank you, Charles. I'm <coughs> can, can everybody hear, hear me? Good. I'm, I'm very uh, glad to be here when John, John and I discussed this for the first time. I didn't expect that the whole the theatre would be full. But then I didn't expect that the Greek crisis was going to hit exactly on this day either, and that's probably one of the things that helped. But the, the theme that I want to develop, um, I, I hope in, in, the, in the eight minutes that you, you gave me, is basically taking a few points from what Charles said and put some meat, as it were, on those bones that are, that are there in, in, the, in the argument. My, my point is, is exactly the same one as you made at the end, that is that the fiscal crisis that we see in EMU at the moment is only the tip, the tip of the iceberg. There's something much more fundamental go, going on underneath. And what I want to do is sort of think through what that fun, fundamental bit is. So, the, so solving the sovereign debt crisis is important in the short run, but isn't, it doesn't really get you out of the problems that, are, that have been there since the inception of the Eurozone, in fact. In, in my opinion, even before that, um, but they don't do all that much, really, um, in, in the long run. Now, the, f the fundamental pro problem is that you have two very different, so what I'm going to say is a va variation on, on an optimum cu currency area kind of argument, but one that also looks at how real e economies operate and how um, what economic po policy is about is embedded in institutions and rules that exist in, in these econ eco economies. And the point is, is essentially that EMU consists of two, possibly more, but at least two ve very different eco economies. Fu fundamentally, what you have is what you would call Northwest Europe, and I take Aus Austria as a part of nor Northwest Europe for the sake of this argument, in the same way that I treat Ireland in a few minutes as part of su Southern Europe, although there are some, some dis dis distinctions there. Northwest Europe has um, a set of domestic institutions that allow actors in those eco economies to permanently monitor what goes on outside these economies and then look at how best to set wages in terms of unit labor costs, as Charles said, so that the, 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 these economies can address the fact that they are trading with very different types of economies. The southern economies are a, ma are, are a mix of what I would call sort of 
li liberal market economies where the, where the market as such is the primary driver of economic activity, think of Ireland, but most importantly, what you would call sort of loosely mixed market economies where the state plays a very big role or played a very big role until recently. But if you look at countries like Spain and Italy, the state is not exactly un unimportant there. Now, what's the pro problem here is that if indeed the crisis of EMU is a crisis of interaction between these two types of e economies as, as it is embodied, em, em, embodied in these current account imbalances that we have seen growing ma massively over the last 10, 10 years, then the, these different shapes and the effect that monetary po po policy in EMU as a whole has on these, these, these different shapes becomes quite, quite important. Basically, Northwestern Europe started in EMU with on average a slightly lower inflation rate than the southern e e e e economies did. The ECB sets its interest rate commensurate with wh whatever its tar target is and whatever the conditions are in EMU as, as a whole, but um, it sets it in a way that it is the, the nominal in interest rate is the same for every e e economy inside EMU. What that means, wh what that implies is that a low inflation country gets punished for having a low inflation rate because it actually has a very high, compared to the others, has a very high real in interest rate. And a high inflation country de facto gets re rewarded because it then has a very low, often in fact a ne negative re real interest rate. Those re real interest rates, as Charles po pointed out, then fuel these e e economies primarily through, through, through asset inflation as far as I un understand it. And the next time around, the same inflation rate, so it, it feels that in the low, sorry, in, in the high inflation countries because it's a, a, a lower re, real, real interest rate, but it has the opposite effect of di disinflation in the low inflation countries. So the, 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 the implication of that is that if in the first period you have a small di difference between the two, through this not nominal interest rate that, that's the same everywhere, which has the opposite effect in these two types of e e economies. In the second period, you have a wider divergence of inflation be between the two because the interest rate always has to reflect in some way a mathematical av average of these, the, these countries. And that effect is that, so that, that pro-cyclical effect, this is important to keep in mind here. That a national central bank will reward the low inflation rate in an economy by lowering the, the real in interest rate. In EMU, the central bank for EMU as a whole does the opposite for every one of the mem member states and thus fuels this entire, this entire as asset inflation boom. Now, to a large extent, the domestic institutions in the north of, of Europe think pri primarily here coordinated wage bargaining that, that keeps unit labor cost growth under control and the interaction with f fiscal po policy, which is usually more res restrictive as well. That means that in those, th those countries, the effect the second time around is that they actually have the domestic institutions to keep their inflation under control, even if it were to rise for, for whatever reason, say e economic growth. In the South, those domestic institutions are entirely absent. You don't have coordinated wage bargaining systems in, in, in countries like Spain or, or Italy that manage to set fundamentally a wage through pa pattern bar bargaining throughout the entire eco economy. Uh, the effect is that in unit labor cost terms, I'm, I'm jumping from macro to micro here, because this, this is how, how, how it works. In unit labor cost terms, what that means is that Northwest Europe becomes permanently more competitive precisely through these mechanisms. Part of it fueled sort of me me mechanically through the interest rate, part of it as a function of do domestic wage bargaining institutions. 
while the south of Europe increasingly becomes less competitive as a result. And that bit, that, that di dynamic, which is sort of em 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 embodied in the um, interaction bit, bit, uh, between mo monetary po policy on the one hand and these domestic institutions on, on the other, that interaction leads to these massive current account imbalances. Why is that the case? Because fundamentally EMU slash EU is a closed eco economy. That means that your competitiveness gain has to be my competitiveness loss. If we could export it some, somewhere else, that, that would be nice, but we can't. The Eurozone exports only about 9% of its entire G G GDP outside the Euro Eurozone. And if you take out the UK, Sweden, and other countries that are wealthy but not inside the, the, Euro the Eurozone, and in the EU, it's even less than that. So that, that means that there isn't really all that much of a po possibility to have a safety valve outside the, Euro the Eurozone as a closed, closed e economy, where you could, um, you know, in, in the case of Spain or, or Italy, where you, where you could export. And the effect is that you then have these competitiveness divergences immediately translating into current account imbalances across the, Euro the Eurozone, as we saw over the last um, 10 to 15 years. And those current account imbalances, and this is where you come back to fiscal po po policy to, to, to some extent, they have to be financed. And the way they are, are financed is simple. It's through debt, either in the private sector or, or in the pub public sector. And that's one of the fundamental outcomes of, of this whole thing, but which is not particularly easy to resolve in the framework that we have. I think I will stop there, John. Exactly eight minutes. The scenes. I'll try to follow, although I'm not uh, known for keeping the time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming, and th thanks for, for the invitation. I feel I'm in an awkward position uh, being a Greek, but also now seeing that most of you are, are very, very skeptical about the future of the, of the Eurozone. The, the, the theme I want to argue uh, doesn't look at the asymmetry. Actually, I don't believe, uh, in, the, I don't believe in, the, in the centrality of this uh, asymmetry of the Eurozone. Uh, Bulgaria is, uh, has a, a peg with, uh, with the Eurozone, but it hasn't experienced the problems that Greece has. Portugal hasn't experienced the problems that Greece has. Ireland has experienced problems, but because of different conditions in the banking sector. I think this is a Greek problem that somehow the Eurozone made a, Euro, a Eurozone problem. And I'm going to focus exactly on that, not on the interests or uh, otherwise failures, uh, different <coughs> conflicting interests uh, at, the, at the European <coughs> level that created the crisis, but actually on a number of policy failures, I think important policy, policy failures that translated what was an easy Greek fiscal problem into a very, very complicated sovereign debt crisis uh, in the Eurozone uh, at large. And I'm going to focus exactly on a number of misguided beliefs that I think play a very important role in, uh, in explaining why this problem was translated from Greece into the Eurozone. <coughs> so I'm going to focus on four things very briefly, I hope. One uh, is a theme that says that the, the Eurozone political elites, the, the Eurozone leaders, paid too much respect to the markets. They believed too much on the ability of markets to punish inconsistent governments. And I'm going to go to that. The second thing is that Again, the Eurozone tried to stick too much into rules that they set in good times and that they never followed anyway. So there's an inconsistency there of pretending to adhere to something that you don't. The third thing is the, the putting too much faith on, on, the, on a political economy of incentives, thinking too much about how important moral hazard problems are, how much important it is to have to enforce compliance uh, in, uh, by member states. And then the fourth thing is relying too much on an economic theory 
that increasingly became less and less relevant, an economic theory of supply-side solutions to problems that are not supply-side uh, problems. So this is the main thrust of my argument, and I'm going now to, to the first of the, of the points I want to make. Too much respect for the markets that don't necessarily deserve so much uh, uh, respect. So despite what happened in, in the supply markets, uh, uh, market in, in, the U in the U.S., Still, Eurozone elites believe in the primacy of markets. Uh, Angela Merkel was arguing against the primacy of, of markets last year, but still we see the primacy of markets. In that, the European Union at large failed to, to, to keep the lessons learned from the European construction project after the Second World War, where we, we defined the scope and the role of the markets and we determined the limits and the, and the, the, uh, the conditions for, for long-run growth. Uh, in, in Europe. Because we then failed to dictate the limits to market operations, especially in times of crisis, we allowed markets to first guess political developments and in that sense to impose economic policy responses. So we're running constantly behind markets who were dictating how much the spreads would be and whether somebody, it's worth betting against Greece uh, or not. Uh, First, we're concerned for the markets not to, not to get upset if we, bent it, uh, if we bent the EMU rules. Then we got worried about whether they declare a default episode. Now we almost forgot about that. What we're worried about is if they are sticking to a voluntary uh, private sector uh, involvement. We seem to worry too much. That's why we had a 21% haircut in July, or agreed on, on one, and now a 50% haircut. When the IMF was saying that we need a 75% haircut, and when, if you look at the data, you need at least a 90% haircut for, for Greece. Okay? But we agree on 50% so that we don't upset the markets. What happened with, with the Prime Minister of Greece uh, yesterday is very telling. When the Prime Minister announced this thing about the referendum, the markets were among the first to respond to say that we want to stick with the 50% deal. F five days earlier, they were arguing that we will never accept the 50% deal. The highest we can go is 40%. So maybe the markets do not dictate political developments. Maybe the markets are afraid about policy-making shifts. Too much respect in the markets is not good. The second point, sticking to the rules and the institutions that are not working. It is true, EMU was built on two main institutions, central bank independence, i.e. depoliticization of monetary policy, and stability and growth pact, i.e. primacy of monetary policy. Okay, so tying fiscal policy onto monetary policy. This was meant to, to enforce intrastate adjustments. So Greece will become more productive because there's no alternative. They, they will have to do that. So we will contain divergence. This obviously didn't work. It kind of worked in good times, but in times of crisis, it didn't work. But what we forgot by sticking to these rules was that you cannot depoliticize economic, gover economic governance. No matter what you do, economic governance is a political event. Uh, you cannot completely de depoliticize that. In thinking that we can, what we did was that we, we bent the rules, we, we bent the rules, uh, we allowed a bailout for Greece, but we didn't suspend the rules. We didn't go the, f the full way. What would be the full way? It would be for Germany one and a half years ago to buy off 50% of the Greek debt, write it off completely, in exchange get an agreement for preferable investments in Greece, recover the losses they incurred from the investments that they do, this generates growth in Greece, reduces the asymmetry of the Eurozone. Political solutions are there. Economic uh, constraints may be seen too strong if you adhere too much in, into rules that you don't actually obey. 
The third point I want to make, if I have two or three uh, more minutes, is about the, the faith that the Eurozone puts on this kind of political economy of incentives, the political economy of moral hazard, as I uh, like to call it. Moral hazard, time inconsistency, external empowerment, tying one's hands, all these great words that say depoliticize, uh, uh, you know, governments are irresponsible. The idea was that if you bail out Greece, Portugal would become irresponsible. Okay, so because Greece will be bailed out, the Portuguese will enter into uh, uh, an uncontrollable expansion and then they will, have, they will build more and more deficits. Countries don't behave like that. They follow norms, they have policy learning, positive integration, and they don't only rely on penalties in order to behave. I, I believe in, in, in this kind of, uh, of mechanism. Also, when they don't behave, maybe it's not because they don't want to behave, but it's because they don't have capacities. So if you impose a conditionality on the basis of, uh, 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 of incentives in a country that cannot possibly comply, what you do is that you create austerity. That's what we see in Greece, the inability to comply. Greece ended up with the, the, the greatest fiscal consolidation ever, five percentage points of GDP in one year, and at the end of that year had a higher debt than in the beginning of the period. Okay, why? Because you cannot do fiscal consolidation on the spot without uh, having, respecting the, uh, the conditions. And the last point then looks exactly at the logic of, of fiscal consolidation as an instrument, of austerity as an instrument, this overbelief on an economic theory that says supply side uh, solutions to any kind of problem. The supply side model came out of the failure of Keynesianism in the 70s and it provided a very good solution to the European problem to the extent that it was implemented. But perhaps it, applied, it, it provided too good a solution. So somehow we ended up from the point where we thought that supply side solutions, flexibility, deregulation, uh, liberalization of capital markets, uh, resolve supply side shocks. We ended up with, a, with an ideology that said that Structural reforms are the answer to any sort of problem. Don't ask the question, structural reforms is the answer, okay? Even the United States needs structural reforms. I wonder who doesn't, okay? So you always need structural reforms. Maybe it doesn't matter if you do them or not. You will always need them. In that, we also forgot what the IMF was telling us in 2003, 2004, 2005, that structural reforms shouldn't take place at the recession. They should take place at the start of the recovery. Because then you have weak interests, a society that is open to change, you have a government that starts generating revenues so they can finance the reforms, and also you have businesses that face declining borrowing costs, increasing demand, so if there's a liberalization of a sector, new investment can come in. But we applied that in Greece at the time where we had rising borrowing costs, increasing liquidity constraints, the government had no money whatsoever, so we liberalized the markets, but there's nobody to come in because there's no investment. It's too expensive to invest, there's so much uncertainty. And what happens at the end is that we squeeze further incomes of the people who work in the liberalized sector. We have more austerity, more uh, uh, deficit problems. So I think this uncritical adherence to, to a, per a perceived orthodoxy about economic policy sort of completes the puzzle. We believed in, in institutions that didn't work, we believed in, in incentives that didn't work, and we believed in economic theory that didn't work. So to sum it up, my main message is, is the following. Whereas the Greek fiscal problem may have been caused by creative statistics, by fiscal profli profligacy by Greece, by non-compliance, 
and perhaps also by weak monitoring by the European Union, too much risk-taking in the financial markets, whereas the Greek crisis may have the causes there. Effectively, the Eurozone crisis is a different kind of animal. It has been allowed to happen because of the insistence of the European political elites on a failed set of beliefs, on an ideology that puts too much attention on the primacy of markets, the centrality of private incentives, the depoliticization of economic governance, and the role of supply-side policies of deregulation anywhere and everywhere. I think this puts too much space for markets to speculate to dictate outcomes and too little room for governments to have active policy to dictate outcomes. There's no political economy where states set the limits to markets. We are today in a crisis because markets set the limits to the states. That's Thank you very much, Vasilis. From one Greek to another, Dimitri. Okay, so my uh, theme, I will, uh, will, I will try to be kind of on the positive side. I will try to uh, make some, um, um, discuss the causes of the crisis, but also in the perspective of how the, de the design of the Eurozone can be improved so that future crises can be avoided. And um, I will also emphasize what I think is a key um, a aspect of the, of the redesign, which is the financial system. So, um, okay, so much of the discussion of the crisis has uh, focused on, uh, first of all, difference in competitiveness between North and South, whatever the North and the South include exactly. So, um, and also has also focused very much on, on the firefighting, so what to do in the short run. But I think that it's important to take a long-term perspective and think how uh, the Eurozone can be, designed to, uh, can be redesigned to be more stable, even after this crisis is over, let's say somehow this crisis is over, how future crises are going to be avoided. Now, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, some key sources of instability lie within the financial system, and I, th I think this is not quite well appreciated. So, and in particular in bank, within bank regulation. So, um, this is not to say that differences in competitiveness are not, in, are not important, and uh, to a large extent Greece's problems are, are, to, are, I mean Greece is responsible largely for its problems, but um, the, um, the faulty design of bank regulation in the Euros, at the Eurozone level, so, uh, played also a key role in making things much worse. So, for example, I mean, let's think about it. How could a country uh, like Greece and other peripheral countries that had low competitiveness and low, and low fiscal discipline, how, how could they borrow so much? I mean, one can say markets were completely stupid and irrational, but, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps there, are other, there are bad incentives going on even within markets, and perhaps these incentives we can try to correct them. So, um, so let's talk about what, what, what some key deficiencies are in the, way the financial, in the way the financial rules of the Eurozone were. So, first of all, I mean, I would say there are two key deficiencies. So after the introduction of the common currency, <coughs> the debt of all Eurozone sovereigns, whether this was Greece or whether it was Germany, kept um, counting as risk-free for the purpose of bank regulation. So they kept carrying a zero basel weight. So um, this is, I mean, this is the way typically it works when a country controls it, its own currency. The, 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 the banks that hold the, the, within the country that hold the country's bonds, this is counted for as risk-free, but now we had the, the control of the currency went to the ECB. It was not anymore within the national, each, each of the, each of the uh, countries. And the same applied to the ECB, hair, to ECB haircuts. So um, when the ECB was accepting collateral, uh, so, uh, sovereign bonds by different countries to uh, lend money to banks, it was treating in a fairly similar way the um, bonds, bonds by, uh, by high-risk country and by low-risk country. The consequence of that was that banks had very bad incentives. So um, that um, 
they had incentive. I mean, if they could, for example, if a French bank or a Belgian bank could buy, um, they, I mean, they could they could buy Greek, Greek debt more cheaply than German debt, they would they would be quite happy to do though to do to do so. They were not really penalized effectively by the regulators for having a riskier security. And um, so this is okay. So this is an important kind of f failure because I mean, one reason why things are so severe now, as I will come back later, is that. Um, that um, so much of this bad sovereign debt, risky sovereign debt, is held of the, within the portfolios of these uh, of these key players in the system of this uh, of this uh, of the banks. So bad incentives were a key uh, reason here. Now a second deficiency. So so the first one was the bad treatment of sovereign debt. A second deficiency was that, um, and perhaps it might be harder to fix, but is, is is also very important, is that bank regulation was kept predominantly at the national level. So. Um, Supervision of banks was done by the national supervisor, or, or, or supervisor rather than by uh, supervisor at the, at, the, at the eurozone level, and the this had bad, bad consequences. First of all, governments had more leeway to pressure um, their local the banks in the country to buy their bonds, and uh, indeed there was a constant. Not only banks over the euros all, all around the eurozone bought a lot of risky so sovereign bonds, but also there was a bad diversification. Banks, let's, lots of Greek debt was holding, was being held within Greek, uh, the Greek financial system. Same thing for Ireland, for example. Sixty percent of bank-held Greek debt was held within Greek banks. So um, for Ireland, it was similar, comparable figure. So furthermore, an additional consequence of this. Um, Concentration of um, supervision at the national of supervision of the national banking system at the national level was that governments did not have the, a strong incentive to somehow deter or I mean through the regulators not to deter banks from taking a lot of risk because the country would receive the upside. For example, Ireland was doing very, the Irish government was doing very well when uh, its banks were doing well. It was collecting lots of taxes. It was uh, employment was high. But when the things could work badly, is the eurozone that gets the downside. So the combination of these problems. The, the um, led was a what we one could call a diabolic bank sovereign loop, a, lo a, a, a feedback reverse, uh, uh, both sided two-sided two feedback from bank solvency to sovereign solvency, solvency that Charles also alluded to at the beginning. Solvency problems of sovereigns were transmitted to local banks because local, of local banks holdings of sovereign bonds, and conversely. Because banks were local banks were holding a lot of sovereign bonds of, the, of their own sovereign, and conversely, solvency problems of um, local banks were transmitted to sovereigns because, for example, sovereigns were guaranteeing deposits or, to offer, or guaranteed some of the bank's bonds, and also because problems of banks were causing a, recession, causing a contraction of lending, a recession, and hence lower tax receipts. So this bank sovereign loop is a distinguishing characteristic of the Eurozone crisis, and this is what is making the crisis so deep. So the question, okay, so now let's come to the positive side of this whole thing, how to make the Eurozone more stable in the long run. So I would, say, I would propose three key directions. One is that, um, I mean, the first two kind of corollaries of what I said so far. The first one is to give appropriate weights on sovereign debt, both for bank regulation and for collateral, so that banks, so that risky sovereigns get penalized and banks don't have big incentives, don't have the incentives to buy their bonds. Second, to move bank regulation to the largest possible extent to the European level. So we need the powerful European bank regulator. We don't need all this political, the political union perhaps is, is, is a pipe dream, it's perhaps too difficult to happen. I mean, it's certainly too difficult to, to happen in the medium run, but let's have, um, um, uh, let's have a union at the, um, at the, in terms of the financial system. Let's, let's, this is where centralization is important. And the same applies to deposit insurance because the common currency makes it very easy for deposits to fly from one country to another. 
And the third um, pillar, I think, is the, um, to have a credible mechanism for sovereign bankruptcies. So uh, somehow with, the, with what has happened with Greece so far, it was made clear that it was a bit of a muddle through. Obviously, it was a muddle through because there was, this has, it was the first time it was happening. But um, the mechanism has to be credible, and this is key. So the Eurozone had the no bailout clause. This was the modus operandi, and this obviously was not credible. If, if, so we saw that it was completely non credible. One, the, key reason why, the key reason why this was not credible is that, that a lot of sovereign debt was held by banks. So if Greece went under, there would be a, mess, a significant mess in the banking system in the Eurozone. So fixing bank regulation will also facilitate having a credible uh, sovereign bankruptcy mechanism. So uh, anyway, uh, how much do I have? Like a couple of minutes? Or? Yeah. OK, all right. So anyway, I just wanted to make a short uh, reference to um, some work that we are doing with a couple of um, with uh, eight other eurozone economists. At the, the, you can check this out at the website euro-nomics.com. So euronomics with a dash in the middle, where we are making proposals in these directions. So in particular, we propose the creation of Euro European safe bonds, uh, which can be used for the purpose of bank regulation and can provide the eurozone wide safe assets. So these are not euro bonds; they do not involve the massive subsidies that eurozone the euro bonds entail. And so they can be politically feasible. And more generally, the, what I think is the important policy agenda is to come up with a minimal set of reforms that make the, that, in other words, that can be politically feasible, do not involve massive transfers, that can make the eurozone work. And we, what we believe is that the, this concerns mainly the working of the financial system, and this is why we think finance is such an important discipline. So um, now, now uh, anyway, so just a, a few. Okay, let me, let me say a few things about just a few things about Greece. So. Um, okay, due to lack of time, I cannot really go very much to how the, the, Greece, uh, how the bank sovereign loop happened in Greece, but it was the bank so this has happened in Greece in a massive way. First of all, it went from banks to sovereigns just after the Lehman crisis, so the, the problems of Greek banks after the Lehman crisis uh, burdened the public finances, partially because through a government guarantee of, uh, for deposits in early 2009, before sovereign risk was, was even in the, in the radar screen of, of, of traders. But then... Banks got hit back by the sovereign problems when they appeared in late 2009. Now there is a big need, need to recapitalize banks. In the, um, in Greek, I mean, with a 50% haircut, all Greek banks will have to be recapitalized. Will have to be essentially taken, kind of, uh, will have essentially to be taken over by the state in one way or another. Now this recapitalization is a eurozone issue, not to the same severity as in Greece. But what is key in Greece, and I think it also can be important in, other, in some other eurozone countries as well, is that banks have suffered from their close, close proximity to, with the state. So, um, so, so this has so uh, getting politicians to control to get control of the of the entire Greek banking, banking system would be a big step in the wrong direction. So, uh, recapitalization would somehow need some involvement by the eurozone for Greek banks and perhaps also for banks in other countries to avoid these uh, these problems. But the appropriate institution is lacking. For example, the EFSF does not have who can provide some the capital does not have bank regula regula regulation expertise. And what is associated with that with the uh, uh, control of, uh, of banking system by, by I mean, influence of polit political interference in the banking system is this comes together with weakness of, of uh, supervisory institutions. So the financial supervision is quite weak in Greece, and actually Greece is not the only country. I mean, this also applies to some extent in some, in some other countries, but the weaknesses are particularly acute in Greece. So there is very little in terms of um, power to, like, um, I mean, the, the, the uh, for example, capital market um, authority the, um, does not have enough resources. There are not enough resources for tackling white-collar crime. More, more generally, the, white, the, the justice system is very weak. So these are issues, inst deep institutional issues that have to be addressed. And um, so and this, and I would conclude this with the following uh, point, is that 
this, this is one of the reasons this need for deep institutional reform is, the, I think, is why it's key for Greece to remain within the Eurozone. The exit, in my view, from the Eurozone will, leave, will bring some short-lived, might bring some short-lived gains uh, in terms of competitiveness, but uh, the same really terrible, terrible, ter terribly bad institutions will remain. So the same bad justice system, the same bad kind of uh, problems with the financial, with the financial supervision. So I think that engagement within the eurozone within the, the, would, would help uh, in, uh, Greece and perhaps other countries such as Italy also improve their institutions. Thank you very much, Dimitri. And our final presenter is John Gaines. Now, I do benefit from being the last in most of my, my colleagues who said most of the important things, so I probably will stay well within eight minutes. And I just did note that I did agree with Vasily's conclusion, but definitely not this way of getting to it. <laughs> so I think this means we, we might actually have an interesting discussion here. Now, the conclusion I agree with Vasilis is this crisis is not about Greece. It's just about the same way as the crisis of 2007 was not about subprime. Instead, I think we should actually be thankful for the Greeks for being so irresponsible. The sooner we can focus on the real problem, the better we are. So, thank you, Greeks. After all, the costs of the Greek default will be a couple of percentage points of the Eurozone GDP, which is something quite manageable. A couple of hundred billion euros, give or take. On a more general level, we could say this is a systemic crisis in making with two sub-crises a banking crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. Let's talk about the banks first. Now, the banks do, of course, have a, con have a considerable exposure to Greece, but we have to be clear about the reason for this, exactly what Dimitri just mentioned. Greek debt is considered safe when it comes to capital, while lending to a AAA-rated company like Microsoft attaches a significant capital charge. Until the crisis, Greece was rated single A, which, did, which meant that European banks could lend to Greece at, or make relatively high loan at no capital charge. And it's interesting to note that when the European authorities run a stress test on European banks this summer, they explicitly assume sovereign default couldn't happen. So this does take me a little bit to, 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 to my major theme here. On the point of national supervision, which is something which is desirable, but it is a practical impossibility because you cannot have supervision without fiscal powers. And since Europe is probably moving away from fiscal powers, that means that Europe is moving away from being able to have a central European supervisor. So banking supervision will be in the hands of the nation state in the foreseeable future. Fortunately, however, the banks have been quite active in writing down Greek debt, even though, of course, some are more vulnerable than others. So in a way, I think the crisis is also helping us to identify which banks are the weakest, and it might not be too bad if some of them fail, because after all, that might leave the rest will be stronger afterwards. The second sub-crisis is the sovereign debt crisis. Again, if it was only about Greece, it wouldn't be a problem even though, we can, of course, we can question the morality of having poor, well-run countries like Slovenia subsidize the much richer Greeks. However, the elephant in the room is really Italy. Italy is also irresponsible, but it's also much bigger. So what the European authorities are really debating is not the Greek bailout. They are debating the eventual Italian bailout. And Within this, of course, these sub-crises are serious, but they are not in any way, shape, or form systemic. 
What makes this crisis possibly systemic are European politics or European politicians. They had two choices. They can decide to bail out or they can decide to default. You might have a preference of one or the other. We can talk about that later on. But either of these two options would solve the crisis effectively tomorrow. Instead, the European authorities picked the third option to muddle through. Every time Greece needs another billion, every Eurozone seems to need to agree. This caused a big political fight. The newspaper headlines spelled doom, and the uncertainty spirals up. It's this uncertainty more than anything that is creating a systemic crisis. That means if Europe will suffer a systemic crisis, it is because of its dysfunctional political structure and the short-sightedness of European national leaders. And in a way, this is as you expect, because if you look at the history of big crisis events, government tends to be the worst culprit. And there is a sort of conclusion to that. If the inappropriate policy response is usually behind the world's biggest financial crisis, how can we then trust the government to reform financial regulations as they are trying to do now if the government can't even put its own house in order? To me, government reform is much more important than financial reform. <laughs> right. I, now, do any of you want to say anything about what any of the others have said? Uh, if not, I've got a, an idea how we might proceed. I'm what most of us have done, and what we're trained to do as academics, is to try and analyze what has happened and why. What academics are less good at doing is actually foretelling the future and indicating some of the problems and what might happen now. And what I thought might be useful is if I got all the members of the panel to role play an individual in a, an important position in this exercise. So I'm going to ask Bob to kick off by role playing what he thinks that Papandreou is hoping to get out of all this and what he is hoping to do. Then I'm going to ask Vasilis to role play what Angela Merkel <laughs> then I will ask Dimitri to try and role play what Mario Draghi might be hoping to do and hoping to achieve from all this. And I will end by asking John to role play what God would do. <laughs> so, can we start with, uh, with Pat and Dre? Right, well, what, what, what I always find intriguing at the LSE is that each time, so th this is week five of term, right? And in the political economy course that we teach in the European Institute, week five of term is two-level games. Two-level games have a very simple setup uh, for, for the purposes of this, is that you tie your hands domestically so you can get a better bar bargain at the international level. That's the basic idea. So what, uh, what, what, and, and then what, what we try and do is make sure that world events match more or less the kind of things that we teach during these, in this case, the fifth week of term. So what Papandreou, me, therefore, have, has just discovered is the, the logic of a two-level game here. Because he says, basically, what he must have said to himself over the weekend, I can't say this in Greek, but, you know, must have, and I don't know whether they even do this over the weekend, but you know what I mean. He must have said to himself over the weekend, this ain't going to fly at, at home. Yeah? I mean, I get the best deal I can get from Mer Merkel and Sar Sarkozy and who else, and God knows, John, who, who else, 
Um, but it's just not going to fly at home. I mean, you know, the, the moment they find out about this, which they did on Friday morning, bang, you know, all, all, the entire public sector was on strike again and so on. So clearly it isn't going to fly. What do I do? But I can do se several things. I can try and push it through at, at, at home, but I'm already not, let's put it mildly, the most po popular prime minister in recent Greek history. Um, and on top of that, I don't even... I'm not even sure anymore by Monday morning whether I will actually have a political party that su supports me, right? So that's not, gonna, that's not going to be easy. You can't sort of put these reforms through and then hope that they fly. So I then have another option. And that other option is to tell Merkel and Sar Sarkozy, look, <clears throat> I'm calling a ref referendum at, at home. Because if I do that, you know, and I know, and I know that you know, and you know that I know, <laughs> that this is not going to pass in the shape that it's in. And therefore, what I'm going to do is, is, is basically blackmail the entire... I'm using the, the wrong word. I'm, I use the leverage that I have. Think of what... <laughs> <laughs> Think of what Keynes said about if you owe the bank a hundred pounds, the bank controls you. If you owe the bank a million pounds, you control the bank. Well, that's sort of the, the leverage situation that, that, that I'm in at that moment. So I call the referendum at, at home, and I make sure that it lasts just sufficiently long for it to be organized so that it can cre create a bit of a mess, right? I call the referendum at home just the day before I meet Merkel and Sarkozy again in a very nice seaside re resort on the Mediterranean where we can then discuss these options again. And that's why what, I, what I'm trying to, to get out of this is not a 50% haircut, not a 60% haircut, but a basic restructuring of the entire deal. The scene is, you're now, you're now Angela. You <laughs> realize, because Bob has told you so, that you are, in effect, being leavened or blackmailed. How do you respond at can? tomorrow and the next day. What do you do? I, I, wish, uh, I wish it was the case that Angela, me, uh, was actually feeling blackmailed. I think what, what she may be feeling is that there's a, a, a consistent inconsistency in, in, in the Greek government. So the only thing you know is that you don't know what's, what's coming next. Uh, in, in that sense, I think, you know, like the, the level that doesn't really work because it's not credible. Uh, I think, you know, the Eurozone leaders, including Angela, is, is, is more uh, perplexed by, by what is happening and how could it possibly be happening than threatened uh, by, the, by the credibility of the, uh, of the, of the uh, to, to give a, a referendum, because it is not even supported by the, the, the ruling party, by the opposition, by the public. So, and there's many things that can happen between now and, and the referendum. I think what Angela would or should uh, probably uh, try to think about and what she, uh, she should do is try to see exactly the point of how long can this uh, take and how long can we keep the whole Eurozone and the whole population in the Eurozone and perhaps in Europe at large uh, hostages to this kind of, of slow-moving game of uh, pretending to, taking, to be taking action and then not taking action and then every three months having a uh, you know, a solution which is not a solution and following events and markets uh, and everything. To me, the main point is that one has to stop looking at the very static picture that says some taxpayers finance some other uh, uh, citizens in Europe who have been living uh, beyond their means, the poor Slovenes who are financing the, the irresponsible Greeks. They have to think about what they've gained and what is there to be gained by unity in the European Union 
And the unity implies also a process of integration, because without the process of integration, stagnation also means a process of disintegration. National interests emerge, and then we have more competition. We have competitive devaluations in the exchange rate regime. We have uh, protectionism in trade. We have disintegration. If you look at the long-run long benefits of economic integration in Europe, what it brought about political stability, about uh, the, the, the credibility of institutions uh, in, in Europe, then you can invest on European stability again, and you're going to be a winner in the long run. So what you would do, you would be, uh, it would be to pursue a Marshall Plan or equivalent in Europe. If Germany cannot do it alone, it should be a, a, a significant pillar in that. A master plan that turns the table around, it pushes for growth, uh, more investments, and then we can have reforms, we can have a reconfiguration of the institutional system. But in times of panic, of uncertainty, of austerity, uh, to start playing bad games with a non-credible player, so with uh, Yorgos on my left, uh, is perhaps the worst thing uh, to do. I'm not sure that Angela would uh, follow my advice, but one can only hope. I don't think that given her electorate and the political position in Germany that she would have a chance. I think if she tried to follow your advice, I reckon she'd be out. Now let me turn yes, to you, Dimitri. It is generally believed <laughs> in the market that it is unlikely that the European financial stability, whatever it funds, uh, will have sufficient firepower to hold the line on Italian and Spanish bonds unless the ECB comes in and supports. Now, you are Mario Draghi. Are you prepared to use the ECB's money to support, um, uh, to expand the securities market program uh, considerably? Okay. <laughs> I don't think that I can say anything very useful here. But uh, uh, so, um, okay, just just to, to, to frame the issue more generally. So the the mic. So the the concern of the the I mean what the ECB has been uh, um, trying to um, uh, kind of balance between has been on the, on one hand to. Uh, uh, the one bad has been to, to um, cause the collapse, I mean, to cause, like, I don't know, some kind of panic within the, the European financial system, and uh, problems maybe with in, uh, in the wholesale lending markets for banks. So, and to avoid that, it has, it has pushed, it has been very insistent on, uh, uh, on having no bailouts. So, um, and so the downside of that has been that it has accumulated lots of risky uh, bonds in its balance sheet, lots of Greek bonds, Irish bonds, and now it depends quite a lot on, uh, I mean, if there is a haircut or at some point or something happens, it will depend quite a lot on the sovereigns, on, on all the Eurozone sovereigns to, to be recapitalized. So, so this, is, this is, I think, the basic trade-off. And as Charles said, so now the uh, important part concerns uh, for, the, and also um, John and, and Charles have uh, said that the, the important part concerns now Italy and, Italy and Spain. So these are really these countries are not obvi in obviously uh, insolvent. To, one could argue that their problem is more like a liquidity problem. So the question is, uh, what the ECB should um, do? Should the ECB uh, 
I mean, given the, given the limited firepower, given the limited amount of capital of the EFSF for now, and that much of the capital is not even there yet, so um, should the ACB get quite actively involved with, I mean, conti um, ex continue and expand its uh, um, purchase program, uh, its pro program of intervening in the secondary market and buying the debt of these countries? So, <clears throat> I mean, in principle, this sounds, I mean, I think this, the answer to this question depends, to, to depends obviously on how, at this, whether we think right now that Italy and Spain are solvent. And uh, I, if I were Mario Draghi, I would have to think, I mean, I, I, I think Mario Draghi obviously has a view on that. I, 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 I don't think I can take a very sharp view on that. I think they're more likely to be solvent than not. So, uh, but um, whatever the ECB does, it has to be done in a very, in a overpowering, I mean, I think it probably is a good idea for the ECB to expand its program. Uh, but it has to be done in a very credible manner, because if for some reason the ECB does a bit of that in a timid way and then stops and then continues, then it's going to start realizing losses on all its, on its purchases because the spreads will keep going up. So I think the short answer is probably, I would say, given the current institutional, the, the current mechanisms, the um, weaknesses of the FSF and uh, the, the, the current uncertainty, the ECB is the, is the main player who can, who can um, uh, move in fast. And I would say, Probably, uh, I would qualify that, but I would say probably it, it, would, be, it would be good to, with a very committed way to, um, uh, I mean, to commit to uh, uh, buy enough to keep spreads within an appropriate zone. Yeah, the only problem is it's going to be over the dead body of the Bundesbank <laughs> and the Germans, and they've already lost two Germans. Two dead bodies. I know, so I know to lose one German from the board <laughs> may be unfortunate. But to lose two Germans from the board is somewhat careless. Um, <laughs> finally, John, you're now in the position of God. What would you do if you had the ability to uh, get your... And how should, in your view, this crisis be resolved? Now, this depends on a crucial issue. Is God an economist or not? <laughs> now... If God is an economist, we know the answer. We make all of us Europeans German. <laughs> now, however, I don't really believe. I believe God has humor, so we have to find another, another uh, deus interpretation. Now, I think, me as a God, I like a little bit of chaos. So I would try to figure out what is the biggest troublemaker in the entire European Union? Was the one country that we all, except they, would like to get rid of? Right? It's France. <laughs> now, France does have, because God is powerful, France has, as part of its sovereign territory, a small part of the western coast of Canada. Let's take the country of France, France move it to the coast of Canada, let it join NAFTA. That will keep the Americans occupied for the next 50 years with different problems. <laughs> then, However, then I would still have to worry about my little wavered children in Southern Europe. Now, there are two choices, of course. We could just create a proper Northern European Economic Union, but that's equally boring. So I would then hire Bob as a consultant, have him impose the appropriate labor market and otherwise reforms in the Mediterranean countries, and let Europe prosper forever after. I think on that note, we will now open the... Uh the debate to, to you, so over there. I don't know anybody's name, so, I, so you're first. Um, to be choose, uh, 
Wait a minute, hold on. Wait, there is a microphone, and the people behind you can't hear you, uh, even if we can. So in order to get the rest of the audience to have a chance, there, that works. There. Hi, Toby Chambers. Uh, Dimitri, I'd like to pick up on some of your points, um, because the debate has really been centered around protecting the euro, not letting Greece out of the euro, and I think time now is starting to really put policies in place to make sure that when that happens, Greece gets out of the euro, it'll actually default, and all the implications have to be sort of all the policies on that need to be sort of carefully thought through because that probably could be eventuality in the ne very near future. So, so what's the question? Is whether Greece will exit the euro or whether the policies will be in place or...? Yeah, well, there's a lot of the policies at the moment have centred around just keeping Greece in the euro. Even in the bailout was actually sort of keeping Greece in the euro. But that really long term is unsustainable um, in terms of what I can see. That you, to transform really Greece's economy into something kind of vibrant, it has to e exit the euro. Okay, so first of all, I don't think that, uh, as I mentioned, I don't think that uh, Greece will really benefit. I mean, I'm not, you know, I think it's far from certain that Greece will benefit from uh, exiting the euro. Uh, so I think, that, you know, lots of people say that prices will go down and then there will be this, uh, this big, uh, whatever, growth in Greece and uh, people will invest in Greece, etc. People will not invest in Greece given the crappy institutions that are in Greece. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's really important to fix the institutions in the economy. Like, the, as I said, like the deep institutions, the justice system, for example, it's not working. So, so I don't think that, I mean, I think that the, the economy in Greece has lots of unfairness built in. I mean, there are like some interest groups that benefit a lot on behalf of everybody, the average taxpayer. And I think that uh, if uh, this, if this, uh, if this is, I don't think that exiting the euro will help in any of that. So uh, maybe like Vasily said, perhaps maybe there will be some growth and perhaps it will be easier to, be, to do reforms when, if, if in a growth environment, I mean, certainly it would be easier to do reforms in a growth environment. It's not clear that there will be growth how fast there will be growth after, after exiting the euro. So uh, in any case, I don't, so I'm quite skeptical about the idea that Greece will benefit. Now, as to whether the, place, the policies have been put in place, I think it was fairly, I think it was a re relatively recent surprise about this whole new development about the referendum. So I, th I don't think that, uh, I don't think this was quite expected. Uh, anyway, I don't think that there had, there had been an adequate, I mean, the, the possibility that Greece might exit the euro was not really on people's, I, th I think, on, on kind of, major decision making within the within eurozone leaders now it has become and and uh, and um, um, i think that uh, but anyway yeah so i guess the major consequence could be that the haircut might be even larger than expected and so the question is will will um, i mean there has to be more thought about whether various banks will how they will withstand it so um, bernard casey from warwick university and the hellenic observer lse a year ago, the solution appeared to be maybe that Greece becomes a satrapy of Germany. The solution today appears to be that Europe goes kowtowing to Beijing. Could uh, the panel comment upon the proposals for rescues from the BRIC countries and the implications of these? Who wants to start? John, I could do that. The we have to, I, th I, th I really did not quite understand this discussion this weekend, but we have to keep in mind the, there is no shortage of money in Europe. 
the problem is this money is not being put to any use. The money is just piling up. I mean, banks are hoarding money. Companies are hoarding money. And this idea of going to countries outside of Europe for funding is ridiculous. The, what, the, what the European leaders seem to be trying to do is to compete and to see who could add more zeros to the packets to c try to create what the Americans called shock and awe when they invaded Iraq. But it's not really working when you don't have Tomahawk missiles behind you. So the, they, they could just solve this problem out of European funding quite easily if they wanted to. So uh, I have uh, an idea coming out of uh, what you've proposed. So, uh, and I'm German, so I guess uh, <laughs> I can estimate what Merkel can do. Uh, so I actually think the only way she's going to be able to do anything is going to have a big coalition again. She'll, she'll agree with the Social Democrats to do this. Uh, obviously, in her current uh, government, she can. But what she could do, I mean, we often talk about ring-fencing uh, the crisis. So we have to ring-fence Spain and Italy. So uh, it could be that uh, we basically change the rules so that Greece, Portugal, Ireland debt is considered risky. Uh, it's no longer in the bank capital. Uh, we more or less agree to a Marshall Plan on those countries. For certain conditions, we'll be restructuring the debt. And uh, the ECB will buy Italian and Spanish bonds and draw the line, and Belgian bonds on that matter, uh, and draw the line. <laughs> Uh, that way. I mean, how it can happen in time and how quick politicians can act. Uh, the German government has always been in financial matters, I hate to say, uh, behind. Uh, German banks have made sure of that. Um, typically have not deeply been involved in regulation. And so uh, the knowledge about the structure of the banking system is not there in the government, uh, I think. And hopefully this crisis will drive it home. I mean, uh, I hope some folks uh, who know about this, like uh, you, will, will advise. I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that there was a question, but I've got one for you, which is my question for you is will the German electorate accept uh, a Marshall Plan for the Ireland, Portugal, and Greece, and will they also accept uh, the implications of a very major support for the uh, bonds of Italy and Spain. I'm, I and Germany holds the key. And the question is, what do you think that your own country will do? Um, I hope uh, that Germans uh, start seeing the, why we had the benefit from the European monetary system, which was basically we were exporting to Greece indirectly to Greece, Spain, and uh, Portugal, and Ireland. And uh, whether we did it indirectly through China or uh, directly, it is really of no concern. So German banks hold Greek debt because we basically sold our goods and financed it ourselves. So now the lender, uh, the borrower is not liquid or is, is no longer able to pay. Uh, you face what you have to do. So the German politicians have failed utterly to even mention this. They're just saying, oh, the euro is good for us. And just because we can, don't have to exchange money uh, if we go across the border, that's not enough for Germans to understand why they should be for the euro. So unless they articulate the advantage of the euro and why we benefited, uh, it will not happen. They, the German electorate will, uh, will not agree, uh, similar to the Finnish.
No, no I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the German position here, and Germany has fought very hard to, to keep this Europe, create this European Union and put it together. Does Angela Merkel want to be the chancellor that causes the euro to break up and quite possibly the European Union to break up? And do the Germans really want that eventuality? And isn't that exactly the blackmail the Greeks have? It's not about this ballot. It's really about it's gambling with the future of the European Union. And given the relatively small amounts of money at stake, how can the Germans do anything but pay? Sorry, can I? I'll just say, uh, I, I think, I think, <laughs> thank you. Sorry, uh, I think, you know, it is in many occasions, in many different parts of the world where you see that the you know, the leaders have managed to convince the public, circumvent the public, or inspire the public. Uh, and, and there are very good reasons, some of which we, we already discussed, why the, the, the public should be convinced and should be uh, inspired towards a solution that involves rescuing the Eurozone and in Greece for that matter, uh, rather than letting everything uh, collapse. Uh, in that respect, I think this is also a problem of, of leadership and being too afraid take the political risk. In that sense, uh, Yorgos Papandreou maybe, uh, you know, has uh, outperformed Merkel in, in, in that respect. Yeah. He took the risk. Can, can I add something about this Marshall Plan? Uh, so, okay, so I'm a little bit um, kind of worried about these big plans like Marshall Plan. So I think that um, certainly what I, what I think should be, um, what I think was a problem with the, the support package that uh, Greece got, and perhaps this might also apply to Portugal, uh, is that um, it was focused very much on uh, um, this macroeconomic target, for example, like a deficit target, um, revenue from tax collection, as opposed to being more like development aid, really how to uh, targeted money for how to build specific institutions. For example, uh, a problem in Greece is that the justice system is not, there's, is, is not, um, uh, there's, no, there's not enough IT, there's not, it's not computer, computerized enough. So, of course, it's very slow. So, inst instead of um, pushing the government, kind of a not very competent government to, uh, I don't know, raise a given amount of tax revenue, which essentially means just tax and tax and tax and tax. Just target money in a very kind of, um, in, 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 a, in, in a clever way towards the areas where um, reforms will bring big benefits. So I think that, um, so I'm for, uh, in favor of less scale and more focus to the mi on the micro level of the institutions. Well. Yeah, just one, one small thing is that it, it's important to keep in mind that the, the Germany that we see now is not the, the Germany that en entered the EMU in 1999. In, in, in fact, for a large part of the Ger German electorate, EMU has not been quite the blessing that we all make, make it out to be. That has been true for the economy as a whole, but not necessarily for a large part of the, the, the electorate. We've seen real wages stag stagnate, job security fall. Um, the entire wel welfare state, as it existed in the mid-1990s, basically no longer exists. It's also, my, my sense has always been you can push the Germans, so th there's a dark side here, right? You can push the Germans quite a while, but at some point they, they say no. And one of the underlying things here is not just are we bailing out sort of, you know, ir irresponsible neighbors, is that this comes on the back of 20 years of re reform in Ger Germany that has seen this entire successful, full model, su sorry, successful model completely tur turn around with rather negative implications for a large part of the electorate. And so it's not a surprise. I pre predicted five, 
predictions that come true have met many fathers, so don't, don't worry too much about that. But I pre predicted a few years ago that you would see a rise in, in Euroscepticism in Ger Germany, especially around the Euro, because all these reforms don't seem to produce any effects. At the same time, the electorate was never all that keen on the euro. It was, uh, if, had there been a referendum in, Ger in Germany in, in the mid-1990s, it may actually not have happened. And so at some point pushed, and it doesn't seem to pr produce any re results. Well, either the political system absorbs that shock, and then M Merkel has to start thinking about how to either make the claims that you do or do, do something else at Boulder, or else the political system pr produces its, its own instabilities. And that, I mean, the fact that the FDP is now a Eurosceptic party is something that drives you up the wall. I mean, you know, these people were always massively in favor of that whole arrangement, right? John wants to ask a question to the rest of us. I had a, well, I had a question for one of the two Greek panelists, and this is just about an article I read in The Guardian this morning. This was, just, this was talking about what would happen to Greece if they actually left the euro, and as, as the worst case scenario. And, 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 and what the article sort of seems to be the conclusion, was, and by, by a political scientist, not by an economist, was that because I mean, Greece is running a primary deficit, this would cause immediate halt to supplies of fuel, this would cause interruptions in supplies of food, this would cause an immediate collapse of government services with government in, unable to provide those services at the best of times. This could cause widespread riots ar around the country and the military quite possibly must step in. So this is by a Greek political scientist. What do the Greeks here say, say about that eventuality? The military got replaced yesterday morning. I, I did. Well, I, I, what I have heard is that the military does not even have gasoline to put in their, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in their oh, tanks. Uh, so it's not clear what they would. I think the, the, the primary deficit is not anymore as high as, uh, as it yeah. was. So in some respect, that's controllable. There's going to be some difficulties with paying pensions and salaries, but we already have difficulties pay, paying pensions and salaries, so nothing big news there. I think the, the, the immediate effect would be mainly uh, sort of in the political field, uh, and then the, the whole uncertainty, how it spreads to the real economy, rather than if you want what happens to the government sector directly from, from, from the budget or to the financial system, although obviously the banking system will be completely destabilized. The problem is that Greece cannot uh, get the, you know, follow the path that Argentina followed, you know, to get out of the of the problem once it devaluates and it adopts back the drachma and devaluates, because it doesn't have an export sector. It has a very very low export base, six seven percent of GDP, and it has very low capacity. Small businesses, uh, no access in big distribution networks. So even if you know, it's not a problem of price competition. Greece actually is price competitive. It's a problem of having the ability to, to capture or to access markets. And Argentina did have that, and they managed to recover from the, from the devaluation quite uh, sort of easily in, in relative terms. Greece will, will have a much more difficult time. I think it's not only the immediate effect, it's the long run prospect that doesn't look very good, uh, which makes the, the, the idea of, of a, a return to the, to the national currency you know, not very appealing. Can I add something to, I very much agree with Vasilis, and uh, I also would like to add that if Greece exits the euro, it would be a massive redistribution of wealth. So uh, there are a number of, you know, rich, uh, various rich Greeks and also various, whatever, who have profited from the, whatever, the corruption of the, of the past 10 years or, or more, who have taken their money out in euros and, you know, they, they will come back and um, uh, buy lots of uh, state property at very um, low prices. So I think that if Greece exits the euro, it's going to be, we might become, we might uh, become, Greece might become like uh, Russia was uh, uh, after the fall of uh, 
the, 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 after the fall of communism, at least there could be, we could get this kind of state, so. Stuart Fleming, there's some evidence that the European Central Bank is, is contributing to the pressure on the Italian government to bring in a new Italian government headed by Mario Monti. Would a change of government to a technocratic government in Italy significantly improve the general tone of the peripheral debt crisis or the sovereign debt crisis in Europe? Well, that's a political science question, I think. That, that's, that's what it sounds like. Is. The, the problem with, with Italy is that, so you, you have two views on Italy. One is that it's a ge ge gerontocracy, and so you, just, you, you have these elites floating around, and then you replace one by another, but it doesn't really fundamentally change all that much. And the other one, which sort of follows on from that, is that if you want to change, change anything, you need to think about how to build a sort of new co coalition. You have to go back almost 20 years ago, destroy the existing par party system and try to, to build sort of co coalitions be be between what I would call the enlightened left and the enlightened right that can then do these things. I don't think that any te technocratic go go government which will, which will consist of these gerontocratic elites is going to do all that much because I don't think that the problem is one that you can resolve from Rome in Italy. It's one that you, you need to, f to figure out how to build institutions at the, at, the, at the level where they matter for everybody who's involved. And I, 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 I don't, I mean, it, it worked for about three years under the Maastricht Treaty with um, Champi, I think it, it, it was, and, and that's it. And that was because the, the pressure was big. Everybody was on board, the employers, the trade unions, the, the central bank, and everybody was on board. That lasted three, four, four years. Then that clown came in and sort of destroyed the, the whole thing. I think, you're, I, I have to say, I think you're rather pessimistic. I mean, Italy is running a primary surplus. Uh, its current account position is not that awful. Um, I, it's got, in many areas, really quite a vibrant uh, manufacturing and export area. I think that if it wasn't for a feeling that the Italian political scene is dysfunctional, um, that Italy would probably be all right. And I think that they, and anyhow, three or four years of a good technocratic government might be enough to get through. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> anyhow, next question. Maybe. Will we a two-speed euro ring fence any future issues and stop what has been described as the ultimate contagion? by a Harvard economist in 1999. I don't think we really got the question. Was the question, how do you avoid contagion if Greece goes down? No, will a two-speed euro stop the contagion machine that the euro a has? A two-speed euro. The difficulty is getting to a two-speed euro, because the moment you actually start talking about it, you have the most enormous bankrupt. Um, and you can't organize a sort of a, a, a southern euro without talking about it. And the moment you talk about it, everyone takes their money to Switzerland and flees. So that there's a, there's a I, even if it was a, uh, even if it was a possible outcome, it's almost impossible actually to organize it in a way that you can, that you can get the thing going. It might be the result of a major crisis, but I don't think it is something that you could you could you can put in place. Uh, certainly not to avoid a crisis. And the very <coughs> in indication that the political leaders in Southern Europe were considering it 
would immediately trigger off the biggest crisis you've ever seen. Kevin James wants to ask a question here. Several of the panelists suggested that the crisis we see is not is um, a consequence of much deeper, more fundamental flaws in the institutional structure. So, you know, does um, Demetrius talk about Greece's fundamentally dysfunctional, deep institutions? We're talking about the um, need to completely reconfigure Italian politics as if the past 20 years hasn't happened. Um, if that's what it takes for a stable Europe, it seems as uh, for a stable euro, it seems like we're never getting a stable Europe because those changes are so dramatic. Well, John suggested moving France to North America. Okay, so these things are not going to happen, right? And so. Um, and, and it seems like there wasn't any sort of way of creating, from what you were saying, a stable Europe, unless some deep fundamental changes did happen. So given that Europe could survive perfectly well before the Euro was in existence, you know, um, it seems more like what you're suggesting is that the people would be better off without the Euro. Well, there are sort of two, two points here. One is, that, sorry, one is that once you create the Euro, that's Charles's point, once you create the Euro, you can't undo it quite that easily. There's an irreversibility built in. It's not a symmetric process where everybody comes together. Oh, now we, we decide to divorce, right? There is no judge that didn't sort that, sort that out for you. And the, the, the second thing is that I, I think, okay, one of the important things about de debates like this is that we discuss very different dimensions of a crisis that, you know, the, the headline bit, the, the longer stru structural bit. And, and eventually, say, you know, the, the position I take is, which also speaks to you, is that you have two, two Europes in there. Good. Say that that's true. Just for the sake of the argument, say, say that that's true. That does not necessarily give you the solution. I mean, it's, it's an important part to understand where the problem came from. It's a very different exercise to try to figure out how, if that's true, what that implies for the, for the future. So I am, I am not, I mean, this is, this is why I'm an academic and not a po policymaker, as Charles start, started out, is that I find this a very, very difficult crisis to, to think through. And it, I mean, I'm, I'm mildly Eurosceptic, nothing like my friend John. Uh, but I, 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 am, I don't want to see the Euro disappear, but I don't know how to keep it alive as it is. And it's not all that obvious how even a reconfiguration of that whole thing would be po possible. Re remember, it's like the Hotel Ca California. You can never leave. <laughs> I, I, I find it really quite difficult to see how this crisis is going to get resolved without a lot of crockery getting broken. It's, it's so difficult, and so many things can go wrong. I, you know, I don't think any of us even foresaw the Papandreou referendum, which is, you know, suddenly came out of the blue. When you think of the other things that can go wrong, I mean, the likelihood of a crisis is, I think, very considerable. But when the crisis is over and done, which may cause a lot of harm, suffering, unemployment, and all the rest of it, I think that the, the European leaders will have to get back together again and think about a complete reconfiguration of what Europe might be in future. I, think that I don't think that the European ideal is dead. I don't think that the, a reconfiguration of the Eurozone is out of the question, but I don't think it will happen until the crisis has occurred, whatever form and however that may occur. Anyone else want to come in on that? I think uh, I'm obviously not a geosceptic, but uh, uh, I think the questions we put about the stability of the Eurozone is, are in a way, uh, you know, so they come from, from what we want to see as the outcome for, for the Eurozone. I could put the same question when I see a big financial crisis in a country, in Argentina, 
maybe, you know, would I be justified to come and say, well, maybe we should abolish the nation state. Nation states don't work, you know. We don't need national governments. We should have local governments to, to, to cater for local needs. No, we believe in nation states and we try to resolve the problems as they come. We believe in a European project to the extent that we do and if we do. And we come, uh, with, with, you know, we try to find the solutions in the best way we can. We will never have perfect governments, but actually we don't always need perfect governments to have good economic performance. Even Greece experienced 15 years of very fast growth, being, being only second to Ireland in terms of speed of growth, uh, growth rates in Europe. Okay, so even this kind of failed state with failed institutions, with uh, sorry, responsible citizens and everything but, uh, they managed to grow by 4% for 15 years, year after year. So, you know, not quite bad. Uh, I think we have problems, we have to find solutions, but we shouldn't look, you know, we shouldn't use the problems as an excuse for, for justifying, you know, things that we want to put in the agenda. I, I believe in the European project, and no matter how badly it does, I will try to find solutions. If I don't believe in the European project, no matter how well it does, I would still try to undermine it, or I would still try to find some other kind of solution. So I think the two questions are separate in a way. We're coming up to the last four minutes. I'd be quite interested if each of the panel members would like to uh, sort of give a concluding short comment, uh, starting in reverse order. John, do you have a final comment? I was, just, I was just thinking about what Charles was just saying about what will be the political endgame. And I, the way I see it, there are only two possible endgames out there. Either Europe will move to a full fiscal federalism, effectively create a European state, or we will revert to reality as it was 1980, perhaps a loose coalition, but without economic integration. And I don't really see Europe moving to a full fiscal federalism. There's too much opposition to that. I hope Europe will find a balance, uh, find a way to keep the European Union alive without the euro, which is of course at the root of these problems, but the common market and the various other bits which are highly, are useful. That would be my ideal outcome. But uh, like I say, the crisis has to play itself out first and we can think of a lot worse eventual outcomes than that. Vincilius. No. Dimitri. Okay. So, uh, <coughs> Okay, I, I think that the euro has a, a broad benefits, so I don't think that the euro was a bad idea uh, altogether or anything. I, I, of course, there were some design problems, some things that were not really thought uh, fully through at the inception of the euro, both to let some countries in, but also, as I mentioned, some problems have, having to do with the governance of the financial sector. So I, I think that uh, these problems can be addressed. I, I, I don't share, I mean, Maybe I don't, know. I, I don't share John's pessimism that uh, the only way is for the Eurozone to break up effectively. I think that there could be some midway that makes the Eurozone workable and that is not the political union, which maybe will take place in the, maybe will never take place. But so I think that there is some midway. And I think that this effort, and this midway should emphasize quite a lot the, uh, uh, the issues about the financial sector. And uh, I think that this effort to redesign should uh, the earlier it starts, the better it will be because it will change drastically, even though these kind of uh, changes in bank regulation or in uh, other aspects of the fundamental design of the Eurozone will take time, I think expectations matter. And this can, can give a very strong signal to the market that the Eurozone is going to become workable. So of course, the fires, the, one has to extinguish the current fires, but it's also, attention, it's also important to pay attention to these 
kind of longer term issues as soon as possible. Uh, I, I think I will stick to the to the point where, where I uh, started. I think the the, the European Union it has always been uh, kind of a, a political project that used economic means mainly uh, to advance economic and political objectives, stability, prosperity, peace. Uh, and I think at some point we kind of lost track of what we uh, what we're doing, and we started paying too much attention to how markets feel. And, and how uh, specific interests are, are uh, represented or, or not. I think what we're lacking is this kind of drive for European integration to guarantee prosperity and stability for the years to come. And in that sense, we need the leadership that will put forward this, this vision. I think even today, uh, if you, I mean, John was at least half joking, but if we start talking about taking France to the other side of the Atlantic, getting rid of the Greeks, uh, and you know we don't really like the Portuguese or things like that. You, you can see that uh, you know if you can take that forward 10, 15 years, and you can see that maybe this is not the Europe that you would like to uh, to be in. So I think you know if if we reflect on that, then the the question is not economic, is not anything. <coughs> it is about political vision and leadership. Well, yeah. Well, my so it. Here's, here's my, 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 my sense of this. Right? If, if, if I were Monane, not, not the painter, the guy who built the European U Union, and I, I sort of look at what, what happens now, I wonder whether I, I don't think at that moment, it's like, I didn't actually want these institutions to govern these pro problems. What I mean is that the EU has been a solution, an institutional so solution to stop France and Ger Germany having yet, yet, yet another war. And to, 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 it, it worked quite well to, to that effect. But we heaped a lot of very complex problems onto a relatively meager skeleton of institutions and po policies that I'm not entirely sure that that, you know, that, that sort of meager ske skeleton is able to handle. And I fear that what we're seeing in, in the EMU crisis at the moment, sort of the, the fact that it exists already to, to begin with, that there don't seem to be any decision-making procedures or rules or anything of that sort that would help it move, move forward and, and so, so on. That, that sort of is symptomatic of the fact that we have built, that we're using a tool that was, that was there for one reason to do entirely di different things and we're seeing the limits of what we can do with that tool. Thank you very much. Now, before I ask you to thank my fellow panelists, I got a rather awkward exercise. Uh, before uh, Prime Minister Papandreou uh, dropped his referendum bomb, uh, we didn't think that this occasion would get more than about 140 people attending. So that we had arranged a reception afterwards there are not more than 150 people, and there are far more than, in the, than this number in the room. So I can't ask you all to come and join us at the reception of the SDR, and my problem is what to do. And um, what I've decided is that I'm going to discriminate on the basis of age. So all those aged 25 or above are very welcome to come and join us for a reception and a drink in the SDR over the way. And all those who are under 25, well, you've got the, the uh, enjoyment of youth. <laughs> or they could fake IDs. <laughs> so would you all please thank my fellow panelists.